don't give it like a the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, against the Jerusalem narrative, Special Politics of Yafa Tel Aviv, with Dina Academy. Hello, everyone. Uh, today, my guest is uh, Dina Kadumi, and uh, it is part of the second uh, conversation we are recording live from uh, Aman Lab. Um, and, uh, and this conversation uh, will be very much about, uh, uh, very much part of this uh, current series uh, about various uh, problematic aspects of the, of the Palestinian question that, um, have, uh, that might be the, the sixth podcast of this series. Um, uh, so Dina, Dina is an architect and a urbanist, and um, she's uh, used to be the edi editor and co-founder co of Arena of Speculation with uh, Ahmed Barclay, who is also part of this series. Uh, hello, Dina. Hello. <laughs> um, so uh, Dina is also uh, working for the Arab Center for Research and Policy Studies and in Doha in Qatar. And um, maybe to begin this conversation and to, to maybe make the link between uh, what we just talked uh, that, and this sort of articulation of, uh, of uh, the, the world of architecture and the world of uh, the humanities and, and try to maybe, even though I just said it, like try maybe not to think too much in terms of discipline, but to, to, to really uh, think of all those, uh, all those things together. Uh, the, um, the Arab Center for Research and Policy Studies are, are, are about to launch a new, a new uh, university, quite simply, uh, called the Doha Institute for Graduate Studies. Um, and so maybe to begin this conversation, uh, uh, Dina, could you maybe introduce us uh, to the project um, that is currently going on? Sure. Um, so my background is in architecture and planning and development studies. Um, but I've been working at a research center for about the past four years. And our focus is on social policy, public policy, political science in the Arab region. Um, and one of our main sort of tenets is to root our research um, in Arabic and make it kind of by Arabs for Arabs kind of thing. Um, so to support that, we are establishing a small graduate institution in the social sciences and humanities and public administration. Um, it'll start this October. And it's um, one of the, also the main tenets of it is to be a cross-disciplinary platform. So students from all um, eight master programs in the School of Social Sciences and Humanities will take classes together. Um, and it'll be one of the few, I think, courses in the Arab world that focuses on public administration in Arabic. I think that's really, really important when we look at our um, public servants and, and how they connect with their societies. Um, so it's been interesting for me because I, I do come from an architecture background and I think everyone kind of um, doesn't understand. They kind of look at it as a leap. And in Arabic, as many of you, I guess, know, architecture is very much associated with engineering um, as a discipline. Um, and it doesn't reach into the social sciences that much. Um, so in my own little way, I try to insert, um, let's say, a spatial perspective into the work of, of the center. Um, and certainly in the, in the Doha Institute, how, how does urban studies, and I think the, 
the study of, of urbanism in the Arab world um, in Arabic, if, if people actually do research in that field, uh, is, it's not quite developed, I think, as much as we would want it to be. So um, this is a challenge I'm personally <laughs> thinking about. Um, but yeah, I guess that's a good introduction. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so the, this conversation we are about to have will will focus on the, on the, this uh, this double city of uh, Jaffa and Tel Aviv um, as um, as uh, something that you describe yourself as a as a sort of counter example to to the example we usually take to to talk about the situation in Palestine, which is Jerusalem, and um, and uh, I have to plead guilty for myself as well as that guy. I just I just uh, finished my third my third trip in Palestine and 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 only the first time I actually went to Jaffa and Tel Aviv and and I uh, I've been uh, snob, snobbing in snobbing it since then thinking and and, and I, I completely see your point uh, that you will describe in a few minutes I'm sure but as uh, may, may, maybe that's um, it's interesting to to think uh, to think of. Um, j- when when we tend to take Jerusalem as a as a as a urban paradigm, um, we tend to maybe be obsessed a little bit too much with uh, with uh, what happened in 1967, and by doing so, we sort of um, encourage the, uh, the 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 narrative of, of, of the the narrative that finds its current materi- uh, materialization in this idea of a, of a two state solution or a three state solution, however we. We want to call it. Uh, so, so I'm particularly interested in in orienting this conversation uh, of tonight towards towards another another narrative that uh, that would uh, and that would that would take um, as as urban paradigm those, those, those two cities of Jaffa and Tel Aviv. Uh, so, could you could you maybe um, give us a little broader editorial note of your own about about this issue? Sure. Um. Maybe I'll, I'll start from a personal perspective first. Um, so I, I'm half Palestinian, and my family, our village is in the West Bank. But uh, we started in Palestine the process, let's say, of urbanization in the early 1900s. And in 1948, my family was actually living in Jaffa, and my father was born in Jaffa. Um, but as the war started, they fled to their village in the West Bank. And I think growing up... The stories of Jaffa were sort of there, but certainly my claim to land was definitely in the West Bank. And I think when I started doing um, research into Palestine from a spatial perspective, it kind of made me think, well, why is my own claims making spatially limited to only the West Bank, right? I mean, because you know, our imagination had already been kind of reduced, right? And when I think about my father, you know, he, he grew up in, in, in his village and they later moved to Jerusalem and, and Nablus as well. But, you know, he didn't have access to the sea, for example. And, and even us as Palestinians, our relationship to the sea is very much this, again, it's like this myth or, you know, getting to the sea is this kind of dream, right? Um, so when I was studying for my master's, um, I uh, had a friend um, who had uh, lived quite extensively in Tel Aviv. She's Israeli, and she sort of brought me to the attention of this book, White City, Black City, actually, um, by an Israeli architect that, that looked at the relationship between Tel Aviv and Jaffa. Um, 
And at that time, the book was in Hebrew. I couldn't read it. Now it's actually just been translated. So I'd encourage you to, to go read it. But it, it gave me the kind of impetus to begin looking at, at Yaffa and, and thinking about it. Because I think also as a Palestinian in the diaspora, those of us that go visit Palestine, we actually don't think about going to visit Yaffa. It's like we don't want to visit the Israeli space. And we associated that as the Israeli space, right? So people would go to the West Bank and they think that's okay, but they wouldn't make that effort to go to Haifa, go to Akka, go to Nasra, etc. So, yeah, so I started kind of researching uh, Tel Aviv and, and Yaffa and these two cities. And it also became very apparent to me that our constant focus on Jerusalem, uh, both, I think, by, by us as uh, Palestinians, as Arabs, as Muslims, um, and then also by, you know, uh, Israelis and then Jewish Americans, etc., kind of cemented this, this narrative that this was a clash of civilizations because Jerusalem is such emblematic of like a religious, um, a religious say, claim to space and to history. Um, and I thought that that really masked what was happening in Palestine. And when you look at the history of Tel Aviv and Yaffa, it actually becomes very, very clear what the, this kind of colonial relationship between Tel Aviv that was established as this basically, you know, um, Zionist colony in Palestine, very much in, in competition and contradistinction with Yaffa. Um, so, you know, it employed kind of modernist planning techniques. Um, it, uh, it's, it's actually known as the white city. That's where it comes from in terms of the type of architecture that it employs. Um, and the, the spatial planning the street grid of the city, etc., and they they very much wanted it to be, um, you know, a, a different paradigm from this kind of uh, vernacular, traditional, native Yaffa. Um, and I don't know if I'm speaking too much, <laughs> but um, so essentially, once I started kind of researching how this happened and how the this relationship between the two cities developed over time. Um, you see that the, the, the narrative of settler colonialism comes through much, much um, easier and, and, and more apparent than if we keep talking about Jerusalem all the time, which uh, inherently kind of limits us to a 1967 discourse because we, we rarely, I think, as Palestinians, you know, give much claim to West Jerusalem. I think this is problematic. Um, could you could you maybe drive us a little bit um, for I mean I'm sure many people in this room are are quite familiar with uh, the history of Yaffa but uh, but I'm sure that many listeners are might not be so could you could you maybe drive us through this uh, history in particular in relationship to to those um, to those narratives that you were describing right now sure um, so Tel Aviv was established in. I believe 1909, it might be 1908, um, just a few kilometers north of Jaffa. Jaffa was um, the port city in, uh, in Palestine at the time. Um, and obviously being a port city um, kind of began to become a political, economic, cultural capital actually of Palestine. Um, and, you know, so Tel Aviv was, was established sort of as the ideal society that these, you know, Ashkenazi communities would come. Um, and, and, and also what's interesting, planning as a discipline is 
came from the, the British tradition, actually. I don't know if you guys know that. So, um, of course, later we had the British mandate in Palestine after World War I. So that was very much in the minds of the people who were planning Tel Aviv and building it, is that they were able to um, kind of create a, a common ground with, with those in the British mandate. And so by showing that, you know, they were capable of planning their cities, and of course they brought with them this sort of quote-unquote democratic and liberal discourse, um, the, the city became a reflection, let's say, of, um, of how they were able to, I think, uh, convince, let's say, the, the, the British mandate that they should stay. Um, at the same time, there's been a book um, by Mark Levine who talks about how Jaffa was also going through its period of modernization in the early 1900s. Um, and the two cities kind of, let's say, uh, grew um, in parallel to each other, but in, let's say, competition with each other. So the two communities were there, but they were very much separate. And there was sort of like a buffer zone between the two cities. Um, and actually, that buffer zone, there used to be um, an Arab neighborhood there called Manchia. Um, and then later, in 1948, it was actually bulldozed um, after the war. Um, but the, but I, I actually wrote a paper about this, but how at the beginning, these two cities were very much separate from each other. And this kind of mirrors these colonial relationships where you try to make yourself stand out as an us discourse versus a them discourse. But then with time, Tel Aviv kind of pushes to consume Yaffa and for the listeners, I guess, um, in 1948, as you know, uh, the Israelis um, fully, I guess, occupied uh, Yaffa, and the Arab population was all put into one neighborhood called Ajami. So effectively, this whole city was reduced to one small neighborhood, um, and they stayed under military occupation until 1966. Um, I don't know if I should continue the story or... <laughs> Maybe I have, a, I have a question about sure. this period of time. Um, um, I in um, in in Alger in French Alger French colonized Algeria, um, there was there was one key moment that really um, <coughs> that really started a process of what what I called uh, administrativization. It's a weird neologism, but uh, of of uh, of the. Of the colonized Algerians, which was uh, to name the streets and to give numbers to houses, which uh, we don't we don't really find in the West Bank, but I, I'm sort of assuming that in in Yaffa it's been the case at some point of the of history, isn't it? Yeah, uh, definitely. The street names um, and actually the signs is an interesting thing. So in Israeli law. Um, Arabic is an official language, but then when you go and see the actual street signs, um, they could just be like in Hebrew or maybe in English in some cases. Um, but yes, in Yaffa, the streets were numbered. Um, and one of the, today, as people are organizing on an urban level, one of their main kind of wins was to try to change the street names back to their Arabic names. And that's what they've been focusing on and reclaiming sort of um, squares that, again, were also renamed and trying to, re you know, name them after Arab, you know, or Palestinian people in history, etc. Yeah. Uh, I, I suppose, um, um, like, the, the name of the street themselves and uh, the sort of symbolic uh, imaginaries that might be related to them... Uh, 
um, whether whether you 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 use um, uh, fam famous Palestinians maybe to for the square or the street or or on the contrary uh, uh, to have a to have a street uh, with a, I don't know Theodore Herzl's name or something like that is is one aspect of things but. Um, the, the relationship I was, I was trying to do with, uh, with Algeria is like if you take the Algiers Casbah, for example, it's such a labyrinthine, labyrinthine uh, uh, urban fabric. And somehow, when you start naming streets, when you start putting numbers on, on, uh, on houses, you start to be able to monitor the space from, a, I mean, in the case of the French, from a counter, counter insurrection uh, point of view. Where, where you know where to find people, where and, and you're, you're able to arrest someone, know exactly where this person lives, uh, come back later. I mean, all, all this kind of administrative uh, slash policing and militar, militarized uh, uh, practice that is strictly impossible if you, if you do not have the actual uh, uh, the actual administrative uh, uh, markers. And so I was I was wondering if if, if uh, it's been Pretty much the case with Yafa, and maybe around which time, in, if it was the case. I'm sorry, that's a question I did not. We did not prepare together. No, um, no, that's interesting. I mean, I think um, with Yafa, because so much of the population was expelled and it was actually destroyed. I mean, as well, um, the Manchia neighborhood was completely. If you go there now, there's a park, um, and you can barely find any of the old buildings that were there. Um, so there was this process of urban. Uh, destruction and as well as you know ethnic cleansing. So yeah, it's a, you know I guess a different situation. But I mean, comparing that, for example, to when the Israelis want to invade refugee camps, um, yeah, they very much have this problem, and that's why they have to go through the walls, right? Um, and the the knowledge of the urban fabric works completely against them, um, as we've seen in Nablus, for example. Um, um, so maybe now we can evoke the, the, after evoking the history, we can maybe evoke the, the current situation in uh, in Yafan uh, Tel Aviv, uh, and um, through maybe the scope of what you call yourself a ethnocracy, and maybe that's something. Uh, well, yeah, actually, maybe that's something you could help help us define. Ethnocracy. Ethnocracy. Yeah. I mean, you you you. Yeah. I have I have I have your dissertation with me here. Yeah. Whose main title is. Ch challenging ethnocracy in Tel Aviv, Yaffa? Sure. Um, it's not necessarily an urban concept, but ethnocracy is, a, I guess, a political science term um, by a geographer, Israeli geographer, Oren Yiftahel, um, who, you know, is, so Israeli society um, didn't really start to question any contradiction between being Jewish and being democratic until the 90s. And so a bunch of political scientists began to think about, okay, how do we be democratic and Jewish at the same time? And at the end of the day, they really were coming up with justifications for how can we um, have citizens who aren't Jewish and still give them equal rights. And so they came up with all these terms like ethnic democracy or, you know, giving people um, Republican versus libertarian access to democracy, etc. And what he sort of did was um, kind of argued that, no, actually Israel is an ethnocracy. And no matter how, though there are democratic features, let's say right to organize, um, in theory, right to organize, right to form political parties, right to vote, etc., that the logic of the state 
is always predicated on an ethno-class stratification. So that isn't just about Jewish or Muslim or Christian or Palestinian, but it's also about Ashkenazi, it's about um, Sephardic Jews, it's about, I guess now you could say Jews coming from Yemen or Eritrea or wherever. Um, and that the, because there's this colonial logic and the first colonizers were Ashkenazi Jews and they were trying to bring this kind of um, European, white, ideal kind of civilizing mission to the Middle East. And this is always the contradiction, right? Because they were trying to always be European and kind of appeal to these European values or sensibilities, but at the same time, they could only really gain um, legitimacy, authenticity by being rooted in the Middle East. And I think this is a question that they have not been able to, to reconcile, is that how can you um, be coming from somewhere else, literally, um, and then say that you're from, <laughs> from Palestine, um, so in, in terms of your culture and, and everything. Um, so he kind of, in a brilliant book, uh, peels away all of these layers of, of the, you know, quote-unquote democracy in Israel. Yeah. Um, so maybe to, to address this current situation uh, in, uh, in Yaffa and Tel Aviv, uh, I think it'd be interesting to, to follow something you, you describe yourself, uh, which are the, the, the movement from one to the other, from... from both respective populations and, and how uh, it is obviously a very uh, asymmetric uh, uh, movement and, and the reasons for to go from one to the other, whether temporarily or just to, to actually migrate from one to the other, uh, might be interesting for, interesting for us to look at. So soon after the 1948 war, um, Tel Aviv and Jaffa were officially made one municipality, um, which is strange. <laughs> um, but, you know, at, at that time, and, and I kind of look at this, the colonial relationship begins to change. So at first there was an adamant boundary kind of between the two cities. And then that morphs into a frontier. And so Tel Aviv begins to actually expand into Yaffa. And then with time, um, you know, it, it sort of followed some general, you know, uh, urban development and capitalist societies, um, you know, first Jaffa becomes this like dirty space that's a cheap place for artists to go to. So, you know, the artists start moving in in the 80s um, or uh, more quote unquote liberal people who don't mind being with Arabs start moving in there as well. Um, but then with time, because I think as this kind of contradiction between having to be European and being Middle Eastern at the same time begins to surface, and I think as the architecture was also beginning to, to develop as well, and they were seeing how does their architecture reflect being rooted in the landscape, um, they began to see Yaffa as a place that provided them some sort of authenticity. And so architecturally speaking, and in terms of living compared to Tel Aviv, and so um, Yaffa kind of became known as the jewel of Tel Aviv, which was you know, really crazy, right? Um, so, you know, you have, like, these real estate projects moving in and, and sort of moving, let's say, into gentrification. And so, again, I kind of argue that this shows this colonial relationship that you kind of, no matter what you do, you kind of yearn to be that native person <laughs> um, who doesn't have to try to belong in that landscape. Um, but what's happened is, as a result, is Yaffa... Um, so... Tel Aviv, Yaffa. In, in Israel planning discourse, there are um, something called a mixed city. Literally, it's called mixed city. And that's where 
quote-unquote Arabs and Jews live. And so Tel Aviv, Yaffa is one of those cities. Um, of course, most of the mixing is happening in Yaffa. It's not really happening in Tel Aviv. If you go to Tel Aviv, you won't really see very many Palestinians. Um, but in Yaffa, you kind of see this quote-unquote mixing, which um, is a result of gentrification, but you can also say it opens up certain possibilities, I think, to begin organizing and begin thinking about different ways of um, how we approach nationalism or um, access to space or the types of spaces that we want to live in. Um, but yeah, and unfortunately, at the same time, Yaffa's kind of been um, exposed to this tourist trap kind of thing, like, you know, go see the authentic way that the Arabs used to live, but of course not the Arabs being Palestinians, the Arabs of, I don't know, five or 600 years ago, because those people aren't very threatening. They're not political. They're far enough in the past that okay, we can kind of acknowledge that they exist, but the people of today is much more problematic, yeah. And so, so that's, for, that's for from Tel Aviv to, uh, to Yaffa, but I think you were also interested to look at from Yaffa to Tel Aviv, yeah. and, and maybe both to describe um, the, the current movements, but also to maybe have a sort of, uh, of, of vision of a sort of manifesto for it. Yeah, so, I mean, I haven't done any real research on this, but when I was um, in Yaffa, one of the interviews I had was with someone who was saying that some people, um, you know, because it's, it's a pretty tight community in Yaffa from the Palestinians that live there. They all know each other. And for those that um, may not conform to certain uh, social norms, say, or ideals, um, they might actually go and prefer to live in Tel Aviv because they become much more anonymous. Um, so we're speaking about women who might want to live a particular lifestyle, people who are homosexual, people who, I don't know, yeah, may not prescribe to certain social norms. Um, and that kind of made me think more about how do we expand, again, in, in, in relation to Jerusalem, how do we expand the space that we're allowed to have a right to to plan actually so if if this is one municipality and then people are beginning to organize in Yaffa about housing and, and all these sorts of issues and and how does how do funds municipal funds get distributed but they should also feel and I think us as Palestinians should feel that we actually have a right to Tel Aviv I and mean, maybe that's a little bit um, controversial but I think uh, we have to kind of expand. Um, rather than constantly diminishing the space that we're allowed to talk about, um, we should actually be expanding it um, and, and claiming it as our right. And I think if we're looking at a long-term vision of where we might be heading, this is sort of what we have to be thinking about. Well, and it may be controversial, but I think it's still very much uh, in, in, um, in agreement with this uh, refusal to be obsessed with uh, 1967 or, or, even, or even for that matter with with the Nakba as a sort of a beginning of Palestinian history, which of course it, it is not, and that's what that, uh, assuming it would be, would be, uh, would be uh, very dangerous and being very much part of the of the colonizer narrative. Um, uh, mo moving moving forward in this conversation, um, I think I think uh, as as we were both uh, architects or at least trained trained as such, I don't know, I don't know how much people would. 
still give us a status, but uh, um, uh, could you, could I, th I think I'd be, I'd be interested to, to speak uh, here again of, uh, of uh, the responsibility of the architect, and by that I mean I mean both as a, a both within the one again once again the, the colonizer narrative. I mean to to use your words, and and uh, and um, and maybe maybe a sort of um, a sort of counter narrative, uh, counter architectural narrative. So. Uh, I think there's those two particular paradigmatic buildings uh, that in 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 Yaffa that that particularly is illustrates um, this uh, colonizing narrative uh, the Etzel Museum and uh, the Paris Peace House could you could you tell us about those two buildings in particular buildings sure um, I mean maybe just to give it a bit of context I think a lot of work has been done on the complicity of Israeli architects and, and furthering the occupation. Um, but what's interesting is when you look at the architecture um, in Tel Aviv, Yaffa, these two examples kind of show just how uh, out of touch I think architecture is um, with politics, actually. Um, so in the, the first case, the Atul Museum, it was in that neighborhood, Menchia, that I was talking about that was actually completely raised. Um, although one kind of old Palestinian house remained, it was um, it was destroyed, but it, the kind of foundations were there. And um, the you know municipality decided to make this museum um, literally on top of it. The architectural solution, um, imagine the kind of base was old old stone, and then they kind of covered it with kind of sharp glass, <laughs> literally like jutting into the stone. Um, and it's a museum to kind of honor, quote unquote, the, ind the independence um, of Yaffa um, and of Israel um, by this, what we would consider a uh, Jewish uh, terrorist organization. So just no kind of consideration at all for what was, what was there, who used to live there, et cetera. Um, the second case is the Perez Peace House, which... Um, is named after Shimon Perez, the Israeli politician, um, who has this peace center. And they, they, they do these kind of, I think, what we would consider normalization activities where, you know, it's sort of, well, if we all get into a room and just talk about things, then, you know, we'll be fine. And if we do agricultural projects together and these different economic initiatives, then Palestinian Israelis will, will learn to kind of work together. Um, but the organization aside, the, the, the site of the building is in Yaffa itself, and it's, it's not even in the north of Yaffa. It's sort of further down, which is where more of the Arabs live. Um, and it's on the water. Of course, I don't know. Of course, Tel Aviv and Yaffa, they're on the water. And the, the building orients itself um, towards the water. It doesn't even orient itself to the community that it's supposed to be kind of working with. So it's just such an affront to everything, actually. Well, the organization has a front to everything, too. But I guess the architects couldn't do much about that. But, um, yeah, I think for me as an architect, I, um, I worked as an architect for several years, and I, I worked on very big projects. Um, but it kind of, yeah, became a question of how do we, I don't know, become a little bit more critical of our practice and how do we engage in conversations about how is space produced instead of always being on the receiving end of here, go build this for me. But I wanted to understand why are you telling me to build this and who is funding you building this and who agrees with you politically to build this and how do other people engage in this conversation and how the city is built. 
Um, but then as I've come on to this other side, it makes me wonder, maybe in the future I'll want to go back to formal architecture. I don't know. It's a constant <laughs> iterative process, I suppose. Do you see, do you see any examples in, uh, in Yaffa where, um, of, of maybe the exact opposite of the Paris Peace House in, in the sense that the Paris Peace House is, like, as you say, like it's a very uh, um, voluntarily or not naive uh, idea that we just need a, a common space to, to dialogue and then peace will emerge from and, and doves will fly away in the blue sky. Uh, um, uh, but so, so somehow the, the, the architectural, the architectural materialization of this peace house uh, is um, is problematic in the sense that it it goes back to the idea that architecture can um, can unite, can can somehow uh, help society, but in a very in a very uh, uh, dull and 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 uh, harmless way when actually I've, I'd like to believe that things are a little bit sharper than that and, and it's it's okay <laughs> that it's a sharper, it's okay that architecture in, involves uh, political uh, uh, political choice choices and, 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 and sharpness again. So do, do you see any examples of, of that that would maybe uh, uh, address a little bit more a form of uh, a form of uh, political engagement yeah um, I suppose it's also like bringing the the conversation back to process versus the outcome so um, I think one thing and also speaking to you know Israeli activists who are anti-Zionists um, they know all of the problematics about living in, in Yaffa and what's happening to that space and at the same time some of them also feel like this is the only place that they can get away from, you know, um, a very Zionist and, and, and racist society. And so they find refuge in a place like Yaffa, which is interesting. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, the only kind of thing, I guess, that comes to mind is this um, Yaffa Cafe, which is an initiative to actually have a Palestinian... Um, and, and, sorry, I should say Arabic bookstore in Yaffa. And I think that... It's another thing I didn't really bring up that much, but the, the Zionist project was very effective in actually de-Arabizing space. So, you know, quashing the Arabic language in, in every kind of facet and sphere. Um, and so certainly the, the revival of Arabic in the public sphere um, is, is one strategy, I think, for, for kind of countering that. Um, but this cafe, um, yeah, so they have... It, it, it's an initiative, and it was um, uh, started by a Palestinian, by uh, a Jewish Israeli, um, and it's become a space where you know activists can kind of come together and and, um, and think about let's say alternative futures, and they do alternative tours of Yaffa, and so they they show things from a Palestinian perspective. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I met. A Jewish Israeli who was giving those tours, and um, I think they're yeah they're trying to show under the layers of urban history kind of this other narrative that you don't see when you're just if you're not looking for it you don't see um, yeah but I mean it's a it's a difficult situation there it's it's very very sad what's happening people are really being driven out of their homes the prices are going up and um, yeah it's it's difficult. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and that proves well that we cannot we cannot talk about uh, what's going on in Palestine without without uh, uh, evoking as well the, the the violence of capitalism as uh, as we know it in many many other cities and, uh, and the, the gentrification that is at work you know, with uh, various degrees of violence depending on how much it is framed uh, in a city like New York uh, not being framed at all. But so, uh, but in the end, the process is always the same. So I think uh, that's something we should uh, we should never forget. Um, but what you were describing uh, with this cafe is uh, and those tours, those alternative tours, um, are already drawing on the um, on the final thing that I wanted to talk about, which is the the conclusion of uh, of your work, which is the idea that we should aim towards a, a decolonizing narrative uh, because we. We, uh, as we were talking earlier, it, it is very much, it is very much spatial politics. But those spatial politics are absolutely and and uh, and they cannot escape from 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 this idea of a narrative or what I like to call the the imaginary that is linked linked to space. Um, and so, so you you call for a narrative um, that would be based on rights rather than ethnicity. <coughs> could could you tell us more about that? Sure. Um, I think maybe this will also be controversial. <laughs> um, I think some, something that we as Palestinians are charged with is that we didn't understand our national identity until, um, until a Zionist project wanted to be established in Palestine. And so I think in a lot of... Um, uh, Zionists would would say, you know, that there's that whole expression: there was no such thing as being Palestinian, etc. And that's why they were all Arabs, etc. And um, I think that we have to also understand, while obviously there's problematics with that, I think that the rise of nationalism was very much a post World War One and, of course, post World War Two condition when we were in that you know, uh, a lot of post- or anti-colonial movements were coming to the fore and the people really started thinking about nationalism and, and how, does, how does nationalism collapse with the state. Um, and I think, you know, beginning to, ex- again, expand our political... We're so straight-jacketed, I think, right now in terms of what, how our political community is encapsulated in borders. Um, whereas, you know, let's say... Uh, pre World War One, you you know we were able to move from, you know Amman to Jerusalem is what an hour drive. That's what it should be, right? And there shouldn't be any border that you pass. And same thing to go to Beirut or Damascus, etc. Um, even to Cairo, let's say. Um, so what I sometimes feel like is that as Palestinians, our also our political imagination has also been kind of thwarted. I think through this colonial condition. And so rather than ha- you know, have a counter-narrative that, that tries to be a mirror, I think, of that, um, yeah, I, I think we would be better apt to kind of create something based on principles or, or on rights or on our conception of what type of society we want to live in, not, um, not only who can belong to that society. Um, and, and that tends to fall along these ethno-religious lines, which I think are, are, are quite problematic. Yeah. 
Well, and uh, I think that links perfectly well with a, a previous conversation on Archipelago with Sofia Hazeb uh, about what she calls the, the no-state solution, which I, I thought was pretty uh, uh, interesting in uh, in the imaginary that all of a sudden it was uh, it was opening, and and that that relates to to other other work. Uh, uh, I mean, the, maybe the, the little science fiction uh, short stories that Raja Shehadeh wrote. Uh, of um, uh, called 2037, where he imagines the uh, imagines the entire Levantine region as uh, as being uh, borderless, but with with very much new problems appearing. Obviously, I mean that's that's what gives a uh, little tangibility of of things. But um, I mean, I think I think that's also that's also a great point to 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 maybe open to to uh, to the entire uh, room for for discussion. And uh, and so before we do so, <laughs> Dina, I would like to, to thank you very much for for uh, addressing uh, addressing all those issues uh, in in Yaffa and Tel Aviv, and and which definitely will push me to to go there next time. I'll be in, I'll be back in Palestine because I haven't I haven't been doing that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me.